right. Thank you, Gary. Thank you, Donna. Great song to sing as we head into Gospel of John again this morning. And uh, as you remember, we've been with Jesus during the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of in, in John chapter 7, uh, one of the uh, three feasts that uh, every Jewish man was required to go to Jerusalem for. And, and if you remember, Jesus came uh, rather quietly because uh, there were already people in the Jewish leadership looking to kill him uh, because of his uh, explaining that, in fact, he is God's own son. And they understood that to mean that by saying that he was the unique son of God, that he himself was equal with God. And so the Jewish leaders were trying to kill him. So he'd stayed away from Jerusalem because the timing of all that he had to do, it was not time for him to die yet. And yet you remember he, he came into Jerusalem a little later than, than the crowds and he sat down in the temple and began to teach. And, uh, and if you want to go, you can go ahead and put the, the picture of the, uh, uh, the temple pad up there to kind of give you just a little bit of a picture of what that might have looked like as he was probably back in the, in the, amongst the, in an area where often rabbis would sit. You might remember all of the different back and forth that he has, uh, with the people, with the Jewish leaders, really emphasizing who he is and where he is from. And that's the question that's going all, all over Jerusalem. Who is this man? Is he the, the promised uh, one who has, has come and fulfilled the prophecies? Is he the Messiah? Is he the, the prophet like Moses that was predicted in Deuteronomy? Who is he? Or is, is he an imposter? Is he, is he just someone leading people astray? Who is he? Last week, we, we went through that whole back and forth as people talked, and then Jesus would give them more input, more truth about who he is. And the leaders came back at him and trying to, to trap him and trying to, to contradict uh, the truth of who he was. And they, they even sent uh, uh, some, some of the temple guards to arrest him. They wanted to arrest him themselves, and, and, and failing at that because, as the Scripture says, it was not his time wasn't in God's timing. They sent temple guards to arrest him. And so they're still out there, right? We're still in the middle of this, this time in the temple and during the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, which was a feast that commemorated the time that, that the people of Israel spent with Moses as he led them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they wandered in the wilderness and they lived in temporary uh, like sheds or houses or tents. And so during the seven days of, of the Feast of Tabernacles, they would, they would build uh, little shelters and they would live in those for the week while they, came, while they were in Jerusalem. And if they already lived in Jerusalem, they still built a shelter outside and lived in it to remember how God cared for them as they wandered through the wilderness and the things that he did for them. It was also the end of the harvest for the year. And so it was a celebratory time, a time of saying, oh, God has blessed us. Look at what God has given us. But also looking ahead then to the new year and the new crops and the new needs that they would have. 
And so follow along with me now as, as I finish up this section, verses 37 uh, down through verse 52 of John chapter 7. It says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, This certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, This is the Christ. Still others were saying, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You have not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers or Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So as we pick up here in verse 37, we're coming to the end of this seven-day feast. There's seven days of the feast, and each day has a prescribed uh, different group of, of sacrifices that are offered. And then on the eighth day, there's a special celebration, a, a holy convocation, I think is the way the, the law puts it. And here we've come to that last day, the seventh day. And of course, as often happens on, during special times, there are traditions that have arisen around the Feast of Tabernacles that aren't given in the law. Jesus is going to use one of those traditions that have been added on to the celebration to make a very key point here. And that, that, that tradition was called the water ceremony. And, and if you want to go ahead and go on to the next slide, uh, this, this tradition, again, not found in Scripture, uh, fits with the harvest theme of the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, it was a time of remembering, of course, on the one hand, of, of uh, Moses leading them and God's provision for them. And one of the, one of the, well, let me just explain, I guess, what they did. Of course, here's the, here is the temple up on the, the high point of Jerusalem. And a priest would come out of the te temple, down through the streets. Uh, he'd have a golden flask in his hand, and he would come here uh, to the pool of Siloam, which is fed by the Gihon Spring. And from there, he would, he would fill that up, and then he would make his way back up, up the hill to, to the temple. And as he did that, the people would follow along behind. 
and they would be singing the halal psalms, the psalms of ascent. And they had traditions of, of waving branches and, and holding a particular kind of a citron fruit. Uh, those related to celebrating the harvest and looking forward to God's provision for them. And so they had the thing, and they, and they would work their way up to the temple. And when they got to the temple, and if you go ahead and go to the next slide, go into the inner courts of the temple, um, and apparently the people following along after them in this long procession. And then go ahead and go to the next slide. And you can see inside, here's the, the temple itself. Uh, you've got the various gates that go into the inner courtyard there. And this here is the altar uh, where the sacrifices uh, were, were, put, were placed, were burned. They would bring that water in, and the priest would circle around the altar each day and pour out that water as an offering to God. There's a picture um, of God's provision of water. Remember twice God provided water out of a rock for the people in the wilderness when they were thirsty. Uh, it's also, it was a time of, of year when they prayed for the rains, for the, the things that had to be planted and grown ahead of time. So in a sense, it was a, a visual prayer for rain for the coming growing season. On the seventh day, they would go through that whole thing again. They would, the priest would go all the way down to, to the, the pool of Siloam, get the water. They would come back up with the, the songs. And there was also a one uh, a reference out of Isaiah as well that was prominent, that related to the idea of the water. But on the seventh day, uh, the priest would go around the altar seven times. Last day, the day of completion, kind of sounds a little bit like the victory over Jericho, right? But expecting God's provision. And he would pour out the water. Um, they would also time it so that the, it would be the same time as the uh, wine offering as well. And so that day, the two, two priests, one with the wine, one with the water, would come. They would pour out those offerings before God. And it was at that point, I believe, that Jesus, having followed in with the crowd, stood up and says in verse 37, he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me to drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus cries out at the perfect timing, right? If anyone is thirsty, it's a fall festival, probably a very warm day. And here these people are watching this water from the spring of Gihon that's been in the pool poured out. Who wasn't thirsty physically, right? They like to have a little of that water that's being poured out. But to remind, to remind them then of their spiritual thirst, their spiritual need that they were deeply in need of a relationship with God. They were deeply in need of forgiveness. They were deeply in need of someone to take care of their sin for them, right? And notice, too, that Jesus says, oh, if any of you really religious Jews are thirsty. Is that what he said? And you notice what he says? If anyone is thirsty. Let him come to me and drink. 
during this time, people were, were crowded in in Jerusalem from all over the Roman Empire, right? Jews who had come. But then also there were people who were, were uh, proselytes or converts who were Gentiles. They weren't Jewish, but they would come. Now, they couldn't be right inside the inner courts of the temple there. But the, the invitation echoed out. Come to me if you are thirsty. It doesn't matter who you are. Anyone, anyone come to me without exception. And you also notice there in verses 37 and 38 that he, he helps us understand what he means by come to me and drink because he, he repeats himself, you could say, in verse 38 when he says, he who believes in me. It's really saying the same thing. Come and drink, come and believe, just as he has done back in chapter 6. He talked about drinking and eating being the same as believing. Come to me for what you need. I have what you need. That's how you eat. That's how you drink, is by entrusting yourself to me, entrusting that I can take care of what you truly need. But notice, it doesn't stop there, right? It's not just, you will come, and you will be filled up, and you will feel satisfied, but he says, from this person's innermost being, the one who believes will flow rivers of living water. Now, there's these verbs do talk about relationship. Present tense verbs. Keep on coming to me, continually becoming to me, continual drinking. And the river... The, the waters will, future tense, flow when you do that, when you believe. Jesus speaks out here in advance, and John confirms that that's what he's talking about. You get that John speaking there at the, after that, of the coming of the indwelling Holy Spirit that will not only quench the spiritual thirst of those who come to Jesus, but also provide through those who believe what others need so that they too can believe and become filled and have what Jesus has to offer. And that's a promise that dramatically began to be fulfilled later at the, at the Feast of Pentecost, after Jesus ascended into heaven. And he came and, and, the, and the Holy Spirit came on, on the believers there. And what did they do after the Holy Spirit came? They then went and preached to the people in Jerusalem for that feast and told them they could come and they could believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. See, that, that water flowing out from them now impacting the others that heard, and others who would then believe, and then they would have the Spirit within them, right? Who would flow out. Same kind of thing that he talked to the woman at the well about, right? The, the one who drinks this water, speaking of what he had to offer, you know, will have a spring within him, flowing up to eternal life. On the day of Pentecost, what happened? 3,000 people believed. And then they reached out. And the church was born, and the church spread out, and here we are, right? And, the, and that, that, that water, that river of life still flowing in us and through us and out to others who can then believe and have that same promise fulfilled in very important for us, especially if you've been a believer for very long, you've gotten settled into what that life is like, remember that this is a, a river that flows out of you. 
Or maybe you think of Christianity as something you come to in order to get what you need. It's true. You are, when you come thirsty, you have great need. But notice that what Jesus promises isn't just that you won't be thirsty anymore. He says, within you will flow out, right? Because you being united with Christ, having his spirit within you, will then have all of his resources then to flow out to others. To provide for others the life that you have. Not of yourself, but of the one who gave you life. Think of these, this, the Jesus is crying out in the temple. If, if you're thirsty. Well, first you have to realize you're thirsty, right? Realize what great need you had. So some people are saying, yeah, I, I am, I'm in great need. I need forgiveness of my sins. I've made a mess of my life. I need God's, God's life and God's wisdom to show me how to live. But Jesus isn't just speaking on his own authority. He's actually speaking as well from the word, which I guess is his authority, being God. And yet he's not saying to the people there, as you see me, this man standing before you, but he says, look at what you've already been told in the scripture. Now, what he says here in, the, in this passage is not exactly out of any one place in Scripture. And so he's not quoting one specific spot. But let me give you three that speak very well to it out of the book of Isaiah. So turn with me to Isaiah 44. But this is not a new idea, but was God's part of God's plan all along. What Jesus is, is promising, what he is saying, inviting people to here. Isaiah 44, uh, verses 1 through 4. There it says, but now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. God, through Isaiah, gave that same kind of picture of his blessing being poured out and connecting it with his spirit. So it wasn't just that God would take care of the people of Israel and the need for the water that they, that they had, but in fact that the real life that they needed by his spirit. So, Isaiah 44 says that. Isaiah 55 is an invitation to come and to drink. Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 3. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your wages for that which does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear, and what? Come to me. Listen, that you may live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies 
shown to David. Do you hear this echoed in this whole section that Jesus, where he's been teaching about coming to him, about being satisfied, about finding what you need in him? About even chapter 6, spend your money not on the bread that perishes, but on the bread that gives eternal life, which he just defines as himself, right? Come to me. Come to me. Then Isaiah 58, 11. And the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Oh, what's your desire when you're in a scorched place? Water, right? Okay. And give strength to your bones, and you will be like a watered garden, and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. You hear the echo of that in Jesus' invitation? It's not only will you be satisfied, but you will be spring of water. Do you think he's talking about the wet stuff they need? I think he's going beyond that here in Isaiah as well. Come to what you truly need spiritually that then can flow out of you. Pretty bold thing Jesus did amongst a number of people who wanted to kill him. Amongst people wondering, who is this man? And there's a, a a lot of different responses that we get here as well, beginning in verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. And I'm not going to take us back to Deuteronomy 18, 18, and 19. We've been there a number of times, but you might notice that John keeps bringing us back there, that promise that God made to Moses that one day he would raise up a prophet like Moses among the people, and everyone would be accountable for what the words that God gave that one. And as people listen to Jesus teach and the things he has to say and the miracles that he's been doing, they're saying, this has to be the prophet that was promised that would be like Moses. Verse 41, others were saying, this is the Christ or this is the Messiah, the promised one. Notice this is, this is like the last one, a definite statement. There are people out there who seem to have their minds made up. Now notice, they don't necessarily see the prophet and the Messiah as one person, as in fact he is. And sometimes we get a little confused about what hasn't happened yet in prophecy too, right? Okay, so they're still trying to work that out, figure it out. Somebody's saying, well, this is the prophet. No, this is the Messiah. Well, it turns out the Messiah and the prophet are one and the same person who fulfills all of those prophecies together. They're saying all those things that were prophesied, he fits. Look at the, if you remember back um, in verse 31, what was just said. Many in the crowd believed in him and they were saying, when Christ or the Messiah comes, he will not perform more signs than those that which this man has, will he? So they'd seen him heal people. They'd seen him cast out demons. They'd seen him do things that no normal human being could do. He had the power of God. So there were people saying, yes, this is in fact the anointed one, the king of Israel, the one who is going to come and reign forever. But then there were people questioning. 
And they had some good questions they were asking. Uh, you might notice that they say, still others were saying, surely the Christ, this is verse 41, still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? They'd studied their Old Testament scriptures, or they'd been taught them, and they knew that Messiah wasn't supposed to come out of Galilee. Besides, Galilee was not the place you wanted to be from. You remember earlier, Nathaniel's response, can anything good come out of Nazareth, Galilee? He should come out of this area of Jerusalem, Judea. This is where the, the educated, religious, the, the, the people that really ought to be the source of the Messiah are. Can he come from there? Uh, they, were talk, they were looking at 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. Take a look back there and remember the covenant to David. When uh, David had been fully established and God then spoke to him about what God was going to do through him and through his descendants. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 16 says, When your days, this is God speaking to David, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. Your house and your kingdom, I'm sorry, but my loving kindness, verse 15, shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. And so, in a sense, fulfilled in Solomon in a small way, those words were fully fulfilled in the coming Messiah. The one who would be of the, the, a descendant of David, that is literally the seed of David, and that's where he would come from. You don't find the descendants of David in Galilee. David was from Bethlehem in Judea. right? Just like we read about every Christmas, right? Where is he going? Who is this, this one? Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, is another key Old Testament scripture about the coming of the Messiah, the anointed one. Here, using some, some more figurative language, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Here, pointing ahead to Messiah, a root of Jesse, Jesse being the father of David. Okay? That's where he's going to come from. That's where he's going to spring from. That's where God's going to provide this one who's going to come and rule and reign and be the promised one. So the people are concerned. Is this man, this Jesus, he comes from Nazareth in Galilee? How could he be a descendant of David? Now, if they really were interested, having seen the evidence of the power of God working in him, heard his teaching, and understood, or should have understood the truth of it, they could have investigated, right? And found out the things we find in the other three Gospels about how Jesus truly was born 
in Bethlehem. That he truly was, it has genealogies there to prove that in fact he's descended from David, was of the line of David, right? But John doesn't spell these things out. They've already been done in the other Gospels. If they wanted the evidence, they could have asked Jesus. They could have followed up on it. Bethlehem wasn't that far down the road from Jerusalem. They could have explored it. And even Micah chapter 5, verse 2, was the place that they were concerned about. And it's what we read every, every Christmas, right? About how the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Oh, you, Bethlehem, though you're so small, the Messiah, the King, will rise from you. And so there were some who believed that he was the prophet, some who believed he was the Messiah, some who had questions. Well, what about these prophecies? Somebody out of Galilee? Could that be? And some who wanted to seize him, it says in verse 44. But it says no one laid a hand on him. Some saying, he's an imposter. This can't be the Messiah. He's just trying to mislead the people. We've already seen these different arguments rolling around in, the, in this time already. But there's also division amongst the leaders. Verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and they said to, to them, why did you not bring him? Remember last week we saw they'd sent out these uh, uh, <clears throat> temple guards. Uh, these were men drawn from the tribe of Levi. Um, they're charged with keeping order within uh, temple grounds. And it would have, would have been the result of the Sanhedrin, the high court of the nation of Israel, coming together and saying, sending them out, you could say like with a warrant. Go, go, take him and bring him back to us. So here come back these, these men to do that. They come back empty-handed. I'm sure that as all these things have been happening, they've been looking for a good opportunity to do just that. But because of the crowds and the fear that might start a riot, things like that, that that's mentioned throughout the Gospels, they have to wait. And while they wait, what are they doing? They're listening. They're hearing Jesus speak the truth. They're hearing Jesus speak about himself and who he is and why he's come. And it's interesting now, the, the words that Jesus spoke back in verse 17 seem to be proving themselves true. Do you remember back there? It says, if anyone is willing to do his, that is the Father's will, he will know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. What kind of a heart did they listen to these words with? These men have had great exposure to God's word. They weren't just, they weren't just like some sort of a jail guard or security person. They were Levites. Levites were, were a tribe that was, was charged by God to teach the rest of the nation God's word. These men worked within the temple grounds themselves. They were exposed to the truth all the time. Now, they may not have been quite so blinded as those who were actually the leaders, the priests and the Pharisees and the other rabbis. Weren't blinded by ambition, but were willing to seek God honestly. And it has an impact. And as they listened to Jesus, as Kent Hughes says in his commentary, they came to arrest him but he arrested them. 
Jesus grabbed their hearts and they said, we've never heard anything like this before. This isn't just religion. This isn't just words, but this man, when he speaks, it burns in our hearts. I don't want to tell you that that's not, that hasn't stopped happening. Yesterday we were listening to the, the program, The Land and the Book. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. They had, had a guest on there, and he's part of a, a president of a ministry that sends people to the hard places in the world. And he was talking about teams that they have in Syria. And you know, Syria was hit hard with the same earthquakes at the same time as Turkey. And with so many buildings destroyed, so many people killed, there are many, many children, homeless, now street, street kids. And their vision, and what they've begun to do there, is, is to work hard to reach those children with the gospel. And then those children can be to the upcoming generation to give the gospel to the rest of their nation there in Syria. And so they're having Bible clubs, different things like that. And some of these kids, of course, are orphans and have nowhere to go. Uh, some of them are just kids you know, that who's, who have time on their hands. Or in the case of one family, uh, there was a man and he, his wife was no longer alive. And he had his children to take care of. And they'd, they'd started going to one of these Bible clubs. And word had gotten back to him about what they were teaching. And so he showed up before the next Bible club, and he, and he starts to really chew out the people who are doing the club. Telling them, this is terrible. You shouldn't be teaching these things to children. This, this is illegal. I don't want you to be teaching these things to my children. And yet he sat down and listened to what they were teaching. It was a simple children's Bible lesson. When the lesson was over, this man, a Sunni Muslim, Prayed to trust Christ as his Savior. And what he said was, it pierced my heart and I knew this was the truth. Here's a man who, though he had been believing a lie for his whole life, was really genuinely seeking for God. And when he heard the truth, God broke through and said, this is the truth. And he knew it. The same man who came and chewed out the, the, the children's teachers now gathers children and brings them to the Bible club. His life radically changed because Jesus spoke through those people. It's still happening today. Maybe it's happening right now with you. Maybe you've never entrusted yourself to Jesus and his words, not mine, are burning in your heart that you need to entrust yourself to him. But not everyone's willing to believe. Verses 48 and 49, the Jewish leaders are, are against him. It says, and they say, you have not also, this is 47, you have not also been led astray, have you? None, no one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed in him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. And so they now they, they begin to use proper to discourage, first of all, these these guards, but are anyone else who, who would be listening from believing. They try to shame these men out of their amazement with Jesus. Much like the response we saw earlier back in verse 20 where Jesus talked about the leaders trying to kill him. And they said, you have a demon. That's a rash 
strong response, over-the-top response. And here, they're, the way they respond, it's over-the-top. You haven't been led astray. Are you going off the deep end? Are you going down the road to hell? Then they also talk about, you know, none of the none of the leaders has believed this. Okay, so here, here we have these, these different propaganda techniques, right? Try to shame people. Say, who are you? Are you that stupid? Are you that foolish? Now. But then they also say, you could say using uh, peer pressure, but peer pressure from those who are seen as the important ones, right? Have any of the belie- of the leaders believed? You don't see that in any of the leaders, do you? <clears throat> They're trying to destroy those seeds of belief because they don't want to give up their influence, their power. They don't themselves want to admit that they're sinners in need of Jesus as a Savior. And then they, and they, they also jump on the people, right? This ignorant crowd, they're under a curse. They don't know the law, implying that if, if they don't even know the law well enough to keep it. So therefore, as the Old Testament says, as, as the law says, these people are under a curse because they're not keeping the law that God gave them. And the irony of it is Jesus, speaking to one of the leaders, told them that they were actually under a curse. Remember back in John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18? As God was or as Jesus was speaking here to Nicodemus in his situation, says, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Ironically, they're the ones who are under a curse because they won't believe in the one that God sent. Yet they're calling out and saying, these people, they're ignorant. They're not intelligent like we are. They're not learned like we are. They're not the rulers like we are. Don't listen to them. Don't follow them. Don't be led astray like they are. Then in verses 50 through 52, one of their own, Nicodemus, the one that Jesus was talking to in chapter 3. Nicodemus, he who came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, You are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. And they use a woman, right? Just kind of put everybody in the same boat and said, none of the leaders believe. Well, guess what? Nicodemus either believed or was well on his way to believing. In chapter 12, verse 42 of John, we find out that there are others as well who are thinking, who are evaluating, and coming to the conclusion, the right conclusion about who Jesus is. There it says, nevertheless, even many even of the rulers believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. So there were people who were esteemed within Judaism who were believing. But when we're trying to somebody to not believe something, 
We're trying to win an argument, like a blanket statement, say, oh, well, everybody thinks this, or nobody thinks this, right? Uh, we come across, again, up against that all the time in our world. Many people say, oh, well, all the experts agree, or all the scientists concur that this is what's true, right? Heard that a few times? And yet you know, it's not everybody. There are others who are thinking things through for themselves and not just going along with the crowd. There are other points of view and there's other evidence that they're, they're choosing willfully to ignore, but they want to press people down, right? And Nicodemus disproves their blanket statement that they made. He starts to question. He starts to bring some things up. And we find out later that Joseph of Arimathea is another one. Later, he'll come with Nicodemus and, and ask for Jesus' body after he's been crucified as someone who believes. And Nicodemus also brings up a point of law. Oh, here are these people who are so wrapped up in the law. Nicodemus says, well, but, but wait a minute. You want to arrest him. You want to do away with him. You've already said you want to kill him. What does the law say? Does our not law, does not our law, I'm sorry, verse 51, does not judge a man unless it hears first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? Which is exactly what Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 16 and 17 is about. Look back there, when, when judges and rulers were originally set up in Israel, God told them what they should be like and what they should do. Deuteronomy 1, 16 and 17 says, Then I charged your judges at that time, saying, Hear, well, there's a key word, Hear the cases between your fellow countrymen, and judge righteously between a man and his fellow countrymen, or the alien who is with him. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me. This is Moses speaking, and I will hear it. Those three times. What do you do when you have a case? You better hear and know, right? Back in John, that's what Nicodemus is saying, the exact same thing. In fact, he uses the word know, which means to know experientially, to know well a person is about. You can't just make a judgment on surface issues. Have you done the investigation? He brings up an excellent point. And of course they all listen to him, right? No. In fact, they come back again with more logical fallacies. Uh, this one, I believe, is called <clears throat> ad hominem. You call people names, right? You lump them in together with something or someone who is not approved. So in this case, they say, You're, are you from Galilee too? Uh, basically, this is a, you know, a slur, a prejudiced slur against Nicodemus. You remember what Jesus called Nicodemus? You are the teacher of Israel. Here's a man who is very respected in their midst. And they're willing to call him what they thought was a bad name, a Galilean. Lump him in with the ones that, that they as a group thought were ignorant, that were outside of the bounds of good, proper Judaism people who didn't believe quite right. 
And when he brings up a valid point against them, what do they do? They try to knock him down by calling him names, by lumping him in with a, a distrusted class of people. They don't come up with a good answer. They don't say, oh, you're right. Let's make an appointment with Jesus and find out what it is he believes. And then they say, no prophet comes from Galilee. And again, they attack Nicodemus as a teacher and an expert in the law by saying, you don't know what you're talking about. If you look into the, into the, into the scriptures, there's no prophecy of a prophet, of the Messiah coming out of Galilee. And again, here they're just proving Nicodemus's point. If they were to just dig just a little bit, they would find out that Jesus is in fact a descendant of David, born in Bethlehem, in Judea, and that everything according to the prophecies lines up perfectly. The fact that he grew up in Galilee is irrelevant. It fulfills the prophecies as God gave them. And so the Throughout the Bible, the work of the Holy Spirit, the witness of his church, Jesus hasn't stopped being heard, has he? He is still speaking today. He's available to be heard, available to be known, available to be believed in by any who will come and drink. His invitation to come goes on. It's active today. If you haven't believed in him, today is the day to come to him, to believe in him, to take in what you truly need from him by receiving forgiveness of your sins and his gift of eternal life, and then an abundant life here and now immediately. It's a life of believing in him. In, in a life of believing in him, we're filled to overflowing so that, that we can have an impact on others so that we can share life with others, so that what we've received can be given. But it comes first to you saying, am I thirsty? Do I have that great need? If you don't recognize you have a need, you won't come to the water. Today, I urge you, look at your heart. And if you haven't come to Jesus to begin with, that's the first thing you need to do. But if you know Jesus, you're to keep on drinking, right? And you're supposed to keep on having that flow come out of you, to have an impact on those around you, especially those who maybe haven't realized their own thirst. Speak the truth. Let them be like those guards who said, no one ever spoke like Jesus. Or the man in Syria who said, these words burned in my heart. I knew they were the truth. We can be used by God like that, even though we're imperfect, even though we don't say things just right. Allow that truth to flow out of us. God might change a lot of people around you. Get ready. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Words that if we will open ourselves up and be willing to, to hear from you, if we're willing to, to take action by believing and then walking the path you give us, we can be and transformed. And we can be a part of you changing and transforming others. I pray that uh, you'd, you'd give us sharper vision for that, understanding and hearts that are full of your water, your living water, uh, the life of Jesus. In whose name we pray.